If you will, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. But the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, we thank you for the message of hope that you've given us through your word. Lord, we thank you that You did not leave us in our sin, but instead you sent Jesus to come and take our place even while we were at our most ungodly. Even while our hearts were the furthest from you, Lord, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And because his penalty had paid, because his death had paid the penalty, Lord, he rose on the third day so that we could have new life with him, so that we could be resurrected at the name of Jesus. Lord, it's in that name that is above every other name that we pray. Amen. So I want to begin our morning uh, with a passage from Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel was a prophet of the Lord uh, during a time when uh, he had no homeland. Uh, Ezekiel was prophet during the time of the Babylonian captivity. In fact, he was studying to be a priest in Jerusalem at the temple. Uh, But at the time of his coming of age, by the time he turned 30, the temple was no more. Babylon had come in and destroyed the temple. They had taken uh, the people of Judah out of uh, Israel and put them in Babylon. So he was a man without purpose, a man without a homeland, a man without a temple. Every construct of his life had been dashed to pieces. Every comfort he had had been laid to rest. And Ezekiel found himself um, seemingly lost, without hope. But God uh, calls him to be a prophet and gives him a purpose. It was a time when only a remnant of the people of Judah were faithful. 
only a small portion of those who uh, were descendants of Abraham remained faithful to what God had called them to, to the purposes of their calling. But God offers this little bit of hope in Ezekiel uh, chapter 36, verse 22. He says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where they went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Um, There's a lot to be said about a God that doesn't need us to defend him. The Lord defends his own glory. He defends his own honor. And even though we sin against him, God continues to make his glory known among the nations. Then the nations will know that I and the Lord declares the Lord God when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. He continues on in chapter 37. He says, The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me, uh, Ezekiel, out uh, out by the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and was full of bones. He caused me to pass among uh, the valley uh, he caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many uh, on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered him, O Lord, you know. Uh, again, he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, uh, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter. Into you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and I will put breath in you that you may come alive, and that you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as was as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, the sinews were on them, and the flesh grew, and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And the Lord said to me, prophesy to the breath, breathe in them. He said to me, uh, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds of breath and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they came to life and stood on their feet, uh, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, uh, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves. My people and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves. My people, I will put my spirit within you And you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Amidst all this hopelessness, amidst this valley of dry bones, God promises to Ezekiel to restore hearts, to make new life out of dry bones. And he does it. 
by the word of the Lord, Ezekiel prophesies over this valley and causes a great army to rise up for the Lord. God shows that his Holy Spirit is not determined by geographical location. It doesn't matter if they're in the temple or if they're in Jerusalem or if they're in a valley of Babylon. God's Spirit is in the, is, is in the business of changing hearts and changing lives. There's no temple necessary because God tabernacles with us. The place where God's Holy Spirit dwells is not in a building, but it's in our hearts. That's the joy of the new covenant, that God creates in us a place where his Holy Spirit can dwell and live. God's people become new creations. The heart is super important to life. It's something that we can't live without. It's something that is necessary, right? Just as our physical heart pumps oxygen uh, throughout our body, uh, we need our hearts to live. And the same is true for our spiritual lives. Right? Our, our spiritual heart is responsible for the life that we have. And so God transforms our hearts so that we can have life. A human heart can be deceitful and wicked, but a transformed heart goes from being stone to flesh. It begins to beat in rhythm with the one who transformed it. There have been times in my life where I felt very uh, burnt out by ministry. Um, there have been times where I just felt like I wasn't getting the credit I deserved. I wasn't getting the praise I thought I deserved. And I realized the reason I was feeling burnt out was because I was making it about me. I was living and doing all these things for my own glory. And my heart was hardened. Those sinful desires of wanting, to, pe wanting people to notice us and wanting people to think that we're special uh, are very easily uh, hardeners of heart. And so uh, when Christ creates a new heart in us, when he does it, it, it excites us for worship. It excites us to serve him and to glorify him. That's what he says. He says, I'm doing this thing for my own glory, not for our glory, but he does it for his own glory. And so he transforms us. And he does that all throughout the New Testament. Today we're going to focus on a story in Colossians so let's look at, uh, I've got a couple pictures. I'm a very visual learner. Uh, I love pictures. And so I've got a picture of the Lycus Valley. Uh, the Lycus Valley, uh, there it is. Uh, it is located in modern day Turkey. Uh, was first century Asia Minor. It's a small valley, uh, but within the valley there are three major towns. There's Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. Two of those probably sound familiar, and one of them uh, is the most fun to say, and that one is Hierapolis. Uh, that's just my own opinion. So uh, Laodicea was the political ep epicenter of this valley. Uh, it was a place where business happened. Uh, they had a profitable wool market. Uh, it was just a place where uh, people were financially well off. Um, there was a great earthquake that happened and destroyed a lot of Laodicea. And instead of reaching out to Rome for assistance, they just rebuilt themselves. Uh, even though Rome probably would have assisted uh, Laodicea was so self-sufficient, they were so um, focused on being self-sufficient that they would rather do it themselves because uh, they could. They had the, the means. Hierapolis was a religious epicenter. It was a place where people went to worship, uh, not to worship Yahweh, not to worship the one and true God, but for pagan worship. It was a place with uh, lots of temples, uh, lots of idolatry. Uh, it was a place where people would go for healing uh, they had these uh, medicinal baths, which was like hot springs where people would go and 
uh, to be refreshed and to have healing and all these things. And then there was Colossae, which was this small mountain village higher up in the valley. Uh, it was of little significance to the other two. Uh, the other two probably didn't really notice it all that much, but uh, Hierapolis and Laodicea had a really heavy influence on the culture of Colossae. Uh, it was a diverse community filled with uh, Jews and Greeks. Um, and it was just a place where it was lost. It was just a lost place. Um, but God continues to fill that promise he made to Ezekiel to transform hearts, to gather people from the nations. Uh, and he does that through the church in Colossae. He's gathering his people from all nations, not just Israelites, but all who would put their faith in him. You see that in verse 11. It's not Jews or Greeks, but God is calling all people from all nations to be unified in Christ, to be under one banner who is Christ Jesus, to be brought together by one faith, one baptism, one head. We see this in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when Peter gets up to preach before all the people. Uh, the people we see are scattered from all over the Mediterranean region. Uh, usually, uh, the people would come to Israel for the festival. So it was an opportunity for, people from, for Israelites from all over the nations to come to Jerusalem to experience this festival. And God used it to kickstart his, his new Christianity. Right, to kickstart the religion. There were only 120 at the time of Jesus' ascension, but after Pentecost, there were thousands. And not just from Jerusalem, but from all over the Mediterranean. People who would go back and share their faith with their people from their own country. God is creating new hearts and new identities in the people of Colossae. And he's doing it all for his own glory. He's calling those who have been made new to live and act for his glory. He calls them to live a new life. People are surrounded by the effects of sin and idolatry, self-exaltation and immorality, all of these things delaying the hope of Eden and prolonging the darkness that surrounded them. They're surrounded by dry bones in Colossae, but God was working. When we look at, when we look at our lives, it's easy to make ourselves be the good guys. Um, I'm really into movies. I have way too many movies. Um, I lived with my parents for about three years after I graduated high school. Um, I moved in at 20 years old to live with my parents, which is fantastic. I had a 10 o'clock curfew. Um, it was fantastic. It was great. I'm like, this is, this is my life. It's fantastic. I love it. Um, but because I didn't have to pay rent and I was working a job, I could go to Walmart and buy every $5 movie that they had. And so I have well over probably 500 movies, um, which it's a little bit of an obsession. But I love movies because there's always that good guy who, despite all of the obstacles, he overcomes them in the end and he wins. And the reason we love those stories is because we need a savior. We need a hero in our lives. And we, our sinful nature wants us to fill that role. Our sinful nature says, if I just work hard enough, if I just do enough good things, I can be my own savior. I can be self-sufficient. There's no need for me to trust in anyone else. I can handle it. But we have a heightened view of our own abilities. The Bible says that even our righteous acts are as filthy rags before a holy God. There's nothing we can do to earn our own salvation. The story of the crucifixion doesn't offer us that delusion. In the story of the crucifixion, we do not get to be our own emancipator. We don't get to be our own hero. We are either the criminal that mocks and rejects Jesus until his dying breath, 
or were the criminal pleading with the Lord to remember us in paradise? Meanwhile, the only person worthy of the title Savior, the only one who can pay for our sins, hangs in the middle calling us to choose what will we do with Jesus? What will we do? Will we reject him or will we trust him? Will we ignore him or will we hide from him? Will we reject him? Will we fall at his feet and worship him? There's only one response that is worthy of what Jesus has done, and that's to fall at his feet. Peter, or Paul says in Philippians 2 that after Jesus was crucified and after he was, after he was resurrected, after he rose from the grave on the third day, he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits, King of kings, Lord of lords, where every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is the Lord that his name is the name that is above all other names. Because of our sin, there is always going to be death. The wages of sin are death. It's unavoidable. You can't avoid the wages. All roads lead to a nail in the hand, whether mine or Christ's. If I choose to reject Jesus, I die on the cross for my sins. And I'm guilty. I'm condemned. But when Jesus takes my place, the nails in his hands go from instruments of judgment and condemnation to become instruments of his grace and mercy, instruments of reconciliation and resurrection. And although I may be crucified with Christ as he is risen, I too will rise from the tomb. That's what we celebrate with baptism. It's being buried to our old self, dying to our old self, being buried with Christ, raising being raised again to walk in new life, being resurrected with Christ. He takes our penalty, he takes our sin, and he crucifies it to the cross. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having, concealed, uh, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Every failure, every flaw, every time we've stumbled, every time we've rejected God, every time we've sinned, when we put our faith in Jesus, he takes our sin and he nails it to the cross. It's done away with. Our sin is not resurrected, but our Savior is. And Jesus rises again and makes us new. And the hope for Colossae is that our lives are hidden with Christ. There's nothing that can separate us from him. He's called us to be more than just dry bones. So let's take a look at that Colossians passage one more time. I guess we'll do it a couple more times. Just, sorry. <laughs> so verse one, oh good grief. Verse one. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. 
a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Christ invites us to take off the old and put on the new. He doesn't mean just new habits. Right? When you look at the story of Ezekiel, Ezekiel prophesied over the bones and the bones came together and the sinew grew on them and the skin grew on them, but they were still dead. And they were dead because they didn't have the spirit in them. And so even though we are called to put on this new life, if we only put on new habits and don't have a new heart, if we've never been transformed by the grace of God, then we're still dead. We're still dead in our sins. Even if we look righteous on the outside, we're just whitewashed tombs. So Christ invites us to deny ourselves, to follow him, to trust in him, to be made new completely. He puts on the new life. He changes our hearts. He makes us new. I've got some pictures that I think help, um, help us understand this pretty well. When I was a kid, I was really into Schoolhouse Rock uh, because why wouldn't you be? It's awesome. Um, Schoolhouse Rock, it, some of the things I witnessed in Schoolhouse Rock scar me to this day. Uh, and this is one of those things. Uh, so let's, if you'll go to that first picture. Um, for the sake of time and convenience, we will call this man Eugene. So this is Eugene. Everybody say, hi, Eugene. I didn't think you'd actually do it. I'm sorry. That <laughs> was one of those things I was like, oh, I shouldn't have. Okay. So that's Eugene. Uh, Eugene is a uh, kind of short, kind of round fellow. Uh, he's got some pretty sweet white boots and a, and a nice bow tie. Let's look at the next picture. So in this picture, Eugene's skeleton leaves his body. And just leaves him in as a puddle of flesh and skin on the floor. Uh, he still has his nose because his nose is made of cartilage. Uh, but his bones are completely gone. Let's look at the next picture. Uh, there is a much taller skeleton um, with much longer legs that picks up Eugene's body. And then the final picture. Uh, the skeleton puts on Eugene's body. And this is, if you're wondering how I became six foot eight, this is exactly how it happened. When I was 14, my old skeleton crawled out of my body and a new, much taller, more handsome skeleton came and, and put, my, put my body on. So uh, this is a, it, I don't know why it freaks me out so much, just the thought of someone on the floor that looks like a puddle. Uh, but when we are transformed from the inside out, we become completely new creations. All right, the only thing that looks like Eugene is the outside. Right? Eugene's completely different. He's now much taller and his pants are much shorter, uh, which is a good look for him. Looks good. But God completely changes us from the inside out. We become brand new creations. We, we take off the old sinful self and we put on the new. What we put on isn't um, of our own doing, but the Bible says that Christ gives us his righteousness. It's the process of being justified. Right? When we stand before God, he doesn't see the wrong that we've done. He doesn't see the sin that we've done. Instead, he sees the righteousness of his son. God's imputed righteousness onto us. We are holy and blameless, not because of what we do, how we act, but because of what Christ has done on the cross. For the Colossians, to put on the new life and to leave the old life meant walking away from all of the, uh, all of the ideologies of the cities around them. They're called to walk away from self-sufficiency walk away from the pagan religions that they had become familiar with. They were called to abandon all of these things in exchange for something greater. 
They were called, uh, uh, today we are called to do exactly the same thing. We're called to abandon the American dream and exchange it for God's mission and his purpose to make his name known among all nations, to build his kingdom. We're called to leave self-sufficiency, to become poor in spirit, to become in need of Christ. We're called to leave behind our comforts in exchange for the comforter. Leave behind all those things that are familiar in exchange for a life following Jesus, a life of being transformed and being an instrument of his grace to others so that they can be transformed just as we have been. Christ is central in all of these things. He's the one that motivates us. He's the one that inspires us to act in this manner, not for salvation, but in response to the grace that we have been shown on the cross. It's a hard thing forgiving people. It's a hard thing putting away inappropriate speech, putting away hard feelings, putting away idolatry. But Christ is the only one worthy of putting those things away for. We might put some of those things away for self-righteousness so that we can feel good about ourselves, Uh, but our self-righteousness is just sin in disguise. It's just pride. We might try to put off those things in exchange for glory so that people will think that we're good people, so that we can play the part and we look Christian, but it fades. That's not a good enough reason to put away our sin, and eventually it comes back. But Christ's death and resurrection is is the means and the drive that allows us to put away our sin once and for all, to say no to temptation and to live a life for Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, is, he's dead now, but he was a priest uh, that fought Nazis, and he's cool. Um, He has glasses. That's not important. I'm just nervous. Um, But he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And part of being called to follow Christ is being willing to die to our old selves. Being willing to walk away from our old way of living and trust that God has something greater for our lives. We exchange death for life. We leave the tomb and we walk into eternity. Those dead attributes Uh, need to be changed. The first one is our thoughts. It's really hard not to think dead thoughts. It takes intentionality. But a transformed heart pumps new thoughts of life, hope, joy, and purity into our transformed minds. We begin to think like Jesus. Every thought is taken captive, and our minds are used for tools of God's glory. When I was doing my undergrad, I had to take some math classes, uh, and obviously, you can probably tell I'm not good at math. I'm not good at anything, really. Uh, and so uh, math was especially hard for me. There were times where I would just find myself in my bedroom just whimpering with a single tear for having to do statistics when I could be doing anything else, like literally anything else. I would walk on hot coals, then do math. Uh, but when I was taking that math class, I had to set my mind on doing what was required of me. I had to be intentional. I had to think through the equations. I had to think through the formulas. And the same is true for Christianity. We don't just all of a sudden begin to think Christ-like thoughts. It takes practice. It takes intentionality. Our natural inclination is to think sinful thoughts because we're sinful people by nature. But Christ is the motivator. We think 
righteous thoughts, we practice righteous thoughts, and we do it by having intentionality. People today like to talk about living our best lives now and the power of positive thinking that it can have, but the life that we have to live is not our own. The Bible says that our lives are for Christ, that Christ is our life, and that our thoughts aren't used to build ourselves up, but for his kingdom. They're for his glory. So we use our thoughts and we use our lives to put God first. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We've been crucified with Christ. Our lives are not our own. Philippians 1.21 says, for to, me, or for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. God is doing all of these things for his own glory. And for the people surrounded by the effects of sin, idolatry, self-exaltation, immorality, all of these things just delay the future hope that we have. That hope that Christ is making into a reality where dry bones become new creations. Where dead souls become living souls. All right. So... Let me find my page. What did I do? Uh huh. I had the bottom page upside down. I was like, six, eight. I was like, where's seven? Panic. When temptations come, I'm sorry. I'm, I promise I'll get better at this. <laughs> I promise. When temptations come and we are faced with the questions, should I or should I not? This question's already been answered. Um, when we face temptation, it's, it's really easy to be like, should I do it, should I not do it? But if we've put our faith in Jesus, we've already answered that question for ourselves. We've already come to a place where we've said, my life is not my own, but it is Christ to live through me. And so I will resist temptation. I will say no to temptation, because this is not my life. I have been bought with a price. I am not my own. So we, we die to being slaves to sin, and we become slaves to Christ. It's a beautiful transformation. We begin to say no to temptation and yes to God. Yes to God in everything. Wherever you'd have me go, God, whether it's the farthest depths of the earth or whether it's here in Clovis, Lord, send me. I'll go. You have my yes. Uh, Richard Vermbrand uh, was a priest during the time of the USSR invasion in Romania. And he has this quote where he talks about how uh, for us as Christians to resist the direction of Christ would be like a canvas to resist the paintbrush of an artist. The artist is trying to create that canvas into a, something beautiful, something incredible. And for us to resist Christ would be like that canvas to say, oh, I don't, I don't want you to do that there. I think you should put that somewhere else. Right? We as a canvas have no say in what Christ has for our life. Christ is the determiner. Christ is the artist. And he has freed us from our sin so that we could pursue unity. Unity with God, having a right relationship with God the Father, but also unity with others. So let's read Colossians 1, 12 through 17. Verse 12 says, So as those who have been chosen of God... Holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, 
humility, gentleness, and patience. A heart of Christ is different from a heart of sin. A sinful heart is hard and selfish, but a new heart is kind, compassionate, gentle, humble, patient. Verse 13, it says, Bearing with one another the forg- and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all for the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. It pleases the Lord when his people are unified. There's so many reasons for us to be divided, but when we come together unified, it is a sweet thing to the Lord. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountain of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, live forever. It's a beautiful thing when God's people dwell in unity. The reason for unity trumps all of our reasons for division. All of our bitterness and hurt feelings and unforgiveness does not overthrow God's rule in our lives. As God has forgiven us, we are called to forgive others. The reasons for unity we have are love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the tools that God uses to bring us together with love being the greatest. Love being the thing that changes hearts, love being the thing that draws us together and binds us together in Christ. One of the greatest tools that God has given us, uh, but is probably one of the most divisive, is music. God has given us music to unify us together as a church. Music isn't about our preference, it's about our attitude. So often we come into worship services frustrated uh, because the worship that we did that morning, the songs we sang that morning weren't according to our preference or our worship style or our comfort. But what God calls us to do instead is instead of coming in with our preferences, to come in with an attitude ready to worship, an attitude of humility, an attitude ready to meet God where he's at and be transformed and be changed. Music is used to glorify God, not ourselves. Uh, Another thing that divides us is We use music as a way of lifting ourselves up, about making it about ourselves, when really the only audience of our worship is Christ. He's the only one worthy of our worship. He's the only subject of our worship. And so our preference, our comfort, our selves are put aside for the sake of lifting up and exalting Christ. Music is used to encourage and strengthen community, not just personal experience. I think one of the things that people miss out the most in worship is we tell ourselves that it's a private experience. It's just between me and God. It's something that isn't for everyone. When God has put us together as a church, as a body, to edify each other and to lift each other up through worship. It's something that uh, the early church depended on in times of need. It's something that we need dearly. 
He's, Paul says to admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's something that we use to grow each other. I got to go to camp last week, uh, and there's something about student camp that makes students feel like they can raise their hands in worship and go bow at the altar and pray for others. It's refreshing. It's really fun to watch because you get to see God move authentically. You get to see people throw aside their cares and their worries and just worship. For some reason, when we come together on Sundays, we have this mental block that keeps us from worshiping authentically. What will people say if I raise my hands? What will people say if I bow down? What will people think if I go to the altar? Will they think I have something wrong with me? It's like we all have something wrong with us. We're sinners. Like we, that's why we come here, like because we have something wrong with us. And so we, we should be honest and vulnerable to each other in worship. It's ins- inspirational. I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but seeing those moments of authenticity inspires me to be more authentic in my worship. It's like, well, if they raise their hands, well, maybe I can too. If they're willing to go bow, well, maybe I can too. There's something encouraging about being together in worship. There's something that unifies us. This morning, we gathered together and all said together, how great is our God, right? That he is holy and he is awesome. That he's a good God. That he hears us when we pray. That he hears us when we sing. And there's something about hundreds of people coming together in the same room and affirming those biblical truths. It's like, yes, we affirm. Jesus is the son of God. He has done these things. He is worthy. He is holy. We believe it. I am not just me believing it. It's me and a hundred other people behind me singing the same songs. Worship goes beyond singing. Every Sunday service should demonstrate the characteristics laid out by Paul, the humility, the love, the kindness, the forgiveness, but it also should be in our everyday lives. Worship is more than just Sunday morning. It's every day. We are chosen Holy, loved, compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, steadfast, quick to forgive, with love front and center, unified in Christ, being ruled by the peace of God in our lives, being filled with the word of God, inspired to praise God with gratitude, all for the name of the Lord and thanks. That is what should define our lives. That is what should define how we interact with others. These attributes are for every day. And so dead worship versus living worship. What does it look like to have living worship? Well, dead worship is selfish. It cares only for the comfort or preference of myself. It's divided. It's more ritual than it is relational. It's so easy for us to come in and check the boxes and sing the karaoke and feel good about ourselves and never actually worship God. It's not about ritual. It's about relationship. It's putting Christ where he belongs in our life as our head, as our king. It's bowing to him, recognizing that we are not self-sufficient. Living worship is humble. It's motivated by the grace of God shown on the cross, not by preference. It's focused on God's glory and it's united. It's vulnerable. Being able to admit fault, uh, seeking to make things right with brothers and sisters in Christ, being honest, being open. We desperately need more vulnerability in the church. For years, the church has been a place where you put on your best or you put on your mask and you hide amongst all of these other broken people that desperately need vulnerability and honesty. We need accountability. 
It'll transform not just our church, it'll transform our community if we would be vulnerable and honest with each other. Worship is a lifestyle. God has created us to worship him through songs, but also as living sacrifices set apart and transformed by the gospel. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your own bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's what worship is. It's more than just songs. It's how we live our lives. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It says be transformed from the old self to the new. New heart, new mind, new creation. Be new. The problem with living sacrifices is they tend to crawl off the altar. Uh, It's hard to be fully dedicated to God all the time but God shows us grace and mercy. And even in those times where we may close off from God and draw away from him, he's a good shepherd. And when sheep wander, the good shepherd goes and searches and he finds the lost sheep. What Christ has done for Israel, what he's done for Colossae, is what he's done for us. He's done it all for his glory. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ who is crucified on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15 says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We, are live, we live for Christ. I'm going to close with a quick story um, from the Bible. Paul was writing this letter to the Colossian church from Rome while being imprisoned. And while he was in Rome writing to Colossae, he wrote a personal letter to the church in Colossae to one of the church leaders named Philemon. Uh, This letter, uh, Paul is asking uh, intercession for Onesimus. So Onesimus was a slave that ran away. Onesimus ran away from Philemon in Colossae and escaped all the way to Rome only to meet Paul and be shared the gospel, and become a believer, and get sent back to Colossae. It's the best round trip I think could ever happen. Uh, But Onesimus comes to Paul useless, an escaped slave, worthless. Uh, But after the gospel, after he's transformed, Paul sends him back useful. That's what Onesimus means. He becomes useful by the grace of God that was shown him. He goes back not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ to Philemon. He goes back unified with him in Christ. Jesus is changing hearts. He's creating life out of death. And he wants to change our lives. And he wants to use us as instruments of his mercy to change other lives. So as we close, I want to invite you. uh, If you guys have never put your faith in Christ... I want to encourage you to do that today. There's hope and life in Christ that the world cannot provide you. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, what are those things that have crawled back in your life, those dry bones that you need to be made new in? As I pray, Marshall will come up and we'll we'll sing our invitation. Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, we thank you that you've given us all of these things free of charge. You don't ask us to try harder. You don't ask us to do more work. 
Instead, you just ask us to trust you in faith that you've already paid the penalty, that all of the work has already been accomplished. That's what you said, Lord. You said, it is finished. The work is done. So Lord, let us come to you in worship. Let us come before your throne and and lay our lives before you as a living sacrifice to you. Lord, we praise you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.